On a beautiful run through the park on a pleasant day, you can easily get lost. No, no, no! She didn't kill him. Huh? In your true crime podcast. It was the pool guy. So obvious. Whatever motivates you works for us. It's all about letting your run be your run. And Brooks is here for every runner, doing the research and sweating the details to create gear that works for you. It's your run. Brooks, run happy. Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Shana Goldman. Shana, what's going on? Nothing. Glad to be here. How are you? I'm good. Should I have, wait, should I have introduced you as award-winning hockey writer, Shana Goldman? <laughs> Don't let it go to my head. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, congratulations. This is the first time we've obviously I had you on the show since... Uh, since the accomplishment, I, um, listeners don't know, we, I think, was it last year we recorded a, like a big trade yeah. line recap show. And unfortunately yeah. the audio, uh, went to hell, but you know what, which brings us to a good segue here. I, um, I finally splurged on a fancy new mic that I'm recording on today. So hopefully all of our audio issues for the PDO cast will be resolved and, uh, it'll be a smoother listening experience for people moving forward. Um, this is the plan for today. We, uh, we asked people on Twitter for, mailbag questions. They delivered. They sent us a bunch of really good ones. We're going to see, we kind of picked like the most interesting ones that'll help us cover the league as, as much as we can and kind of bounce around on a variety of different topics. And we'll see how much we get through. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. So let, let's start right off. Um, question one from Cameron Hilton asks, can Elias Lindholm win the Selkie or is the narrative for others like Patrice Bergeron too strong? What do you think? This is this is a good one. So the Selkie is something I'm going to be writing about after the deadline. Um, and it does depend how you define it. Is it the best two-way player? Is it the best defensive player? And in today's NHL, it seems very clear that you need to be a very good defensive player who can put in the work, you know, on both ends of the ice. Right. So if you go by best defensive metric, Patrice Bergeron's probably winning it. If you go by best two-way forward, Patrice Bergeron's probably winning it. And I think narrative is how defense is defined by some traditionalists, you know, what they perceive to be good defense. But the fact is, like, he legitimately is good, good defensively. So the narrative's there, but everything's there to actually back it up this year versus some other years where he's just a perennial Selkie nominee. But I think, like, you know, Lindholm's in the conversation, Backlund's in the conversation, Hints, Felino. Um, Anthony Sorelli absolutely is in the conversation. Yep. So it's not decided yet, but someone's going to have to really step up to beat Bergeron. Yeah. I'd add Austin Matthews there as well. Um, yeah, no, there it's, it's a, there's a good combination of players to pick from. I think people generally get fatigue when they see the same player at the top of the conversation for any award, really like year over year. And, uh, Patrice Bergeron hasn't actually won this award since 2016, 17, I believe, which is hard to, hard to imagine, but I feel like he's been like a finalist or at least considered to be amongst the Selkie candidates pretty much every year in those intervening seasons. But in this case, I, I really do think that it's kind of selling him short a little bit to act like it's a narrative thing that, you know, that he's yeah. not actually deserving based on his pure production. Like even if you strip the name brand value aside from the numbers and just kind of evaluated them in a completely unbiased capacity, 
what he's done this year is is genuinely remarkable. I kind of jotted down the 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 scope of it. So in 655 on five minutes with him on the ice this season, the Bruins are controlling 66% of the shot attempts, 68.1% of the shots on goal, 69.1% of the high danger chances, and they're outscoring teams 33 to 17. And that 66% goal share is actually lower than the 70% expected goal share he's currently sporting. Um, you know, take your mileage on good? it. Is that good? It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Whenever, you know, if you, I, I kind of joke, like if you get into like the, the high fifties, if you're talking 56, 58, 59%, I'm like, whoa, that's, that's really good. You're almost approaching 60. We almost need to like come up with a whole new classification for someone who's <laughs> approaching the seventies at five on five. Uh, I know this is a dumb stat that we make fun of, but I should note for people who care about this sort of thing, he's also winning like 63% of his draws, which is a career high rate. He's takes, takes more of them in volume than anyone in the league. And I think only Claude Giroux wins them at a slightly better clip. I went back and looked at the individual game logs for him this season. Cause I was kind of curious about the matchups. There's only three times this year in like whatever, 55 games or something he's played uh, where he got outshot at five on five with him on the ice where the Bruins did uh, once was going up against Calgary's top line. And we're going to talk about a member of that here in a second, who was uh, you know, in this question in the last lane home and then twice going exclusively head to head with Sasha Barkov's line when they played the Panthers. So it's pretty much every single night, regardless of who they play, uh, the Bruins are coming out on top with Patrice Bergeron. They're heavily dominating in any game state. So for me, it, it's not a narrative thing. It's purely like strip all of that away. And he's objectively been, whether you want to call it the best 200 foot player or the best two way player or whatever your sort of you know description is of it, he's the best at both ends of the ice still. And it's remarkable considering that he's turning 37 years old this year. Yeah. And to add on to that, um, his shorthanded impact, I was looking through Dom Lushishan's model before and he leads all forwards, you know, by a long shot. So that's important too. And that, then again, that does depend if you think the forward needs to play in all situations. Do you think they need to play the penalty kill? And that comes to the conversation with Matthews too, because for Matthews, I would think that he'd be a very good penalty killer because he's good at driving play out of the defensive zone. And we see what Mitch Marner can do, you know, a lot of more offensively inclined players don't start at the draw. They're not on that top unit. They get those on the fly, on the fly deployments, so they can go out with fresh legs against the uh, power play, and they know how to disrupt it. You look at you know Kim Atkinson and Sebastian Ajo. So that's all great, and wonderful. But you can make the argument too that it's not worth his time because he's so good at even strengthening on the power play. So if you think penalty killing matters, which most most coaches and players do think it does. You look at Bergeron's impacts there and you go, well, he's against top competition at even strength and he's thriving and he's doing it now against top power plays and he's thriving. Like everything is lining up for him to have, you know, this Selkie winning season. And I do understand the fatigue of his name being in the mix because it's him, it's Kopitar, it's Tabes, even when they don't belong. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, that I, I completely agree with that. It's, I think last year it hasn't been quite as good. And this kind of shows the, the variance of what goes in and what doesn't. But I think like him and Marsha and on the penalty kill last year, outscored opponents when they were playing with one fewer skater. So um, yeah, just, just one hell of a player. And this is like another, another feather in his cap that at age 37, he is still Wait, the same as cap. It's not lap or map. I heard that <laughs> cap is not the way to go. Uh, yeah. I think that's how you finish that sentence, yeah. but I'm not sure. Okay. Um, but so the, the question was more so, I guess, about last Leno. And we did talk about Patrice Bergeron here. I do, I think he is number one on my list at this moment. Um, I think there's a really strong case to make for Elias Leno in second. And uh, I don't know if you agree with this, but my general stance on the idea of who's underrated or whatever, 
most guys aren't underrated in 2022 yeah. because there's so much accessibility online for content and coverage and every team is getting watched regardless of their market size. So if you're good at yeah. hockey or if you do cool stuff, there's going to be people yeah. posting gifts of it and talking about it. Right. I, yeah. I think in this case though, with Lindholm, he might be a bit overshadowed by Goudreau and Kachuk as his co- most common line mates, or maybe it's the way that he kind of plays like this, like very understated sort of business-like game where like, yeah, he sometimes does flashy stuff in terms of like he had that highlight the other night in, in overtime against the abs where he basically just forced the puck away from Eko Ranton and then sprung Goudreau with a beautiful pass off the boards to, to spring him for a breakaway. But for the most part, a lot of his impacts are a bit more sort of subtle, just conventionally, really positionally solid hockey. And so maybe that's why we don't talk about him as much. But yeah. if you if you just, he's on pace for 41 goals this year. And I'm just saying right now that I think he's second in terms of defensive impact for me as a Selkie candidate. So it does feel like maybe we aren't giving him enough love just based on those two qualifications. Yeah, no, I fully agree. Because, you know, there's so many plays too, like, if three assists were given out, he would have one, or maybe we weigh primary assists more than secondary assists, but in his case, so often those assists are the key plays to turn play around or to force that turnover, or it's a smart defensive player that frees up his line mates to do it. And that should be what you want in a defensive forward or a two-way forward. That's everything you're looking for in a selkie caliber player. So he should be in that conversation. He does get overshadowed. And it's nice to see, like, there are a lot of people still pointing out what he's doing right this year. And sometimes I think, yeah, it could be more. That entire line is so good and they're so good together. And he's such a key part of it. And this is definitely one of his best years yet, you know, in every which way above the surface, below the surface. So like he should be right there in the conversation. The part that's a little bit tricky though, is you could look at the fact that their next line can be used as a shutdown line as well. You have Backlund right there, Mangiapani and um, Blake I'm blanking, Lindholm. Wait, no, Blake Coleman. Blake Coleman. Oh, Blake Coleman. Yeah. Duh. And then to on the third line now. Yeah. Yep. You have three really good players right there below that's what makes it so difficult though, because it's like, it's not the player's fault. Sometimes that the line around them, you know, might be considered like shutdown line and then they don't get their chance to show it. But the fact that Lindholm is, you know, he's part of the engine of that top line and he's doing all the right things on both ends of the ice. Like he should be right there in the conversation. He definitely should be overlooked, but like it sucks for him that it's happening this year against Bergeron's, you know, elite season. Yeah. Yeah. That line is up 50 to 18 at five on five so far this season. They've just been completely steamrolling everyone. And and yeah, it is sometimes tough, especially, I mean, I guess you can make the same case with, with Bergeron, although, you know, they've split past rack up for a large stretch here from, from him and Marshawn, but, you know, generally we kind of like lump these trios together and sometimes that can take some of the individual shine off of them. And, and in Linhol's came Linhol's case, I think certainly like, you know, Goodrow's putting up all the points and it feels like he should be a heart consideration or for being a finalist, you know, Matthew Kachuk is, is being Matthew Kachuk. He's also similarly got tremendous defensive impacts, I believe this season and, and, you know, does the highlight real flashy plays shooting through the legs and all that. And yeah, so he, he has to be the best at that highest rate of pucks between the legs per 60, Matthew Kachuk. Like I don't see anyone else trying it as often and pulling it off as often, even if he doesn't score, he's still getting the plays off. The one that he did against Colorado where he hit the crossbar, I believe in their last game yeah. was so impressive to me because of the distance it, it came from. Like it yeah. felt like he shot it from significantly further out than, you know, you typically see it around the goal mouth or around the crease. A guy kind of just tries to get some leverage and, and surprise the goalie a little bit. In that case, it's like, how do you even, you can't even expect that that's coming. Cause that doesn't seem like a logical option from from that far out and he like full velocity hit the crossbar i was like wow that 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 would have been one of the yeah. goals of the year so i i want i want a 
mixtape of the best plays to hit the post because if you beat the goalie and hit the post or something it's still like it, it's so tough there are like these gorgeous passes we'll see like jack hughes the other day he had that spinning move to sharon govich and i think it just went wide like that would have been a highlight real assist right there for him and they get thrown away because obviously it doesn't end up in a goal so it's not as valuable but these plays you know i want to see the best assists that don't lead to goals i want to see the best shot attempts that hit iron like i am so curious because i feel like we'd have so many more like highlight real plays if we look at it that way oh certainly well let's put a pin in that because i'm actually going to bring up this uh, very topic later on in the show when we when we answer another question all right I, I think we we did our justice to that one let's move on to another question from uh from matthew golda here asks how much do the rangers need to add in order to compete for the cup or can igor shesterkin just steal a bunch of wins for them and then in brackets he says also some stats about how good he's been in historical terms would be interesting too so <laughs> Let's put a pin in the in the Rangers component of it in terms of the team uh, and their performance for a second here, and just talk about uh, what Shesterkin's done. I I'm curious for your take. What is your favorite Shesterkin stat that sort of best encapsulates, I guess, the remarkable nature of what he's done this season? Because there's so many different sort of um, you know specific metrics you could kind of pull out. Um, to demonstrate that is there one that really really sticks out to you no matter how sort of niche or, or random it is that that really just shows how remarkable Igor Shostakovich's been this season he definitely has the most attempts at empty net goals this season so yes. that is something yeah um and it, it shows his puck handling which uh Henrik Lundqvist was elite in every single solitary way except for puck handling and Shostakovich now has added that in so it's just it's interesting for me but um i think all but seven of its starts this season can be considered quality starts and i think that's important because it just means he's saving more goals than expected you can take it a step further and then look at how many steals he's had so how many times his uh goals saved above expected has exceeded the team's um goal differential for that game right but yeah like he has 35 goals saved above expected that's almost in, at the level in 37 Sorry. games in 37 games like he was injured this season yes he's starting a lot more games because the rangers trust him above all else and obviously need him to win games um but you look at carrie price like he had 38 goals above expected in 66 games in the year that he was up for the heart if i remember correctly he so won you the heart, see, yeah. oh one the heart okay so yep. shesterkin's creeping up on that number already and there's still so much more to play and the games are going to get more important they have more matchups against pittsburgh and teams that they're going to be going up against so uh for me it's just the quality every single night i think the fact that almost every starts quality start shows the consistency and then when you add it all together and you have that you know really high 35 goals above expected it's like that's an elite goalie yeah i mean that that that's remarkable i think you know my favorite is since the new year i tweeted this one out the other day but i've needed to update it since because he's had a couple gems even even since i tweeted that out uh since the new year He's started 17 games. He's given up 28 goals total in those. He's won 14 of the seven. The three he lost, the Rangers gave him four total goals of run support offensively. And, and he still kept them within. I think one of them was a shootout. Both the others were like one goal losses. So right there, he's got a 952 save percentage in those 17 games. And his save percentage somehow, I thought when it got to 940, it was like, all right, this is the absolute ceiling. It's probably going to regress, regress from this point. And instead, it just keeps climbing incrementally. And at this point, like even when he stops, what did he stop against Winnipeg? Like 44 or 45 or something like that? Yeah. Like It's just like... It was 57 the, unblocked shots, I think, in all situations that he faced. And he saved 2.8 million above expected, I want to see, which was his second best of the year. 
and the gains are still so small on that for his overall season output, just because his save percentage is so preposterously high. Um, I, I brought this stat up on the last show that I did with Dom and Rob, but I wanted to, I kind of like just vaguely threw it out and, and I, I went back and double checked it. And so I wanted to make sure that I, that I got this out there. So he's played 109 periods so far this season, uh, not including the three on three overtimes. He hasn't given up a single goal in 59 of those 109. And he's only given up multiple goals against in a single period 11 times so far this season. And it just kind of, I wanted to bring that up. It's obviously like a, a very random stat. I don't even have the context for how um, good other top Vezina candidates have been in that regard. But it just kind of matches the eye test of like, it seems like if you beat him once in a period, it's like, you're very happy with that and you're taking it yeah. and you're probably not expecting to do so again for a very long period of time. And in a lot of these games, especially like sometimes someone scores early on him and then it just like, on lockdown for the rest of the game. And I think that sort of best capture is just the the impact he's had where I, I can't remember feeling this confident in a goalie um, in, 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 a, in a long period of time. We don't want to get like too overwhelmed here with recency bias and, and be overly hyperbolic, but it really feels like he's just operating on a different plane right now. Yeah, no, he is. The thing is like, you know, he joined the Rangers when they were a bad team. Uh, he joined, we can go further back. He joined the Wolfpack. They were not a good team defensively. And he was their most important player immediately transitioned to North American ice. Like it was nothing next year was outstanding for the Rangers. Um, and yes, he has had some injuries and some have had some doubts about that. You know, he got this contract when I think he only had 47 or 49 NHL games played at that point, but he showed at levels before North America, you know, he came to North America. And since he's been here, what an elite goaltender he is. And this year it's, it's just, it's outstanding to watch because the team, as much as they've made improvements from being the league's worst defensive team, like they were a couple years back, um, they allow a ton on the rush against, they allow a million shots up the slot line, you know, like they yeah. are one of the highest rates there. And, they're trying to play a faster tempo game to go along with Gerard Glon style. And it's obviously not conducive to the perfect defensive system too. Like it's going to take time and I'm sure they're going to start trending in the right direction if they make the proper adjustments by the playoffs. But like at this point, his workload is definitely super challenging and he's responding to it so well. He's keeping them in games. And, you know, if he has an off night, it's, it's a completely different ball game, you know, and if he's out of the lineup last year, it was a little bit different last year. He was out of the lineup. It was Keith Kincaid and uh, Georgiev trying to like hold the fort down and the team was playing their best defensive hockey of the year. And the goaltenders still were not responding well to those workloads this year. You know, Georgiev, when he was on a run has been playing well, but in those sporadic starts, he really does struggle. So you can see that huge difference when it's one versus the other in net. And obviously come the playoffs, it's going to be the one goaltender unless there's an injury or he gets pulled in a game because they see that it's out of reach. So it's nice to see he can play at this tempo. He can play at this rate. Hopefully they don't burn him out is the one concern. I'm sure right. once they feel a little bit more solid in you know their playoff positioning, they can relieve him of his workload just yep. a little bit. But I think they also know like this is someone who came in and said, I like to face a lot of shots and he likes to play a lot and he's very competitive. So you know, they're going to let him run with it. Yeah. I'm curious. I think they have 26 games left at the time of recording. And I think they only have three back-to-back uh, -back sets left in that time. So I'm really curious yeah. to see how many games he squeezes in here to bump up his total um, the rest of the way, acknowledging that you're totally right. Like for a team that is going to make the playoffs and is re as reliant on him being at peak performance as they are, um, kind of having a bigger picture view of that probably makes a lot more sense than trying to bump up his game total closer to 60, just to, to kind of be more in line with, with typical, um, you know, Vesna and Hart 
trophy seasons. Um, well, let's spin this forward then and, and bring up the, the first part of the question, which was about the Rangers as a team and kind of what you do between now and the deadline. And I think they're in a very fascinating spot. And I'm curious for your, for your take on this, because, you know, it seems like they're almost certainly locked up into a round one matchup against the Penguins. Uh, there's still enough games left where that could certainly change, but for the most part, it feels like Carolina's probably going to get that one seed in, in the Metro, barring some sort of a, a fall off and play from them. And then the Penguins and the Rangers are going to be two, three there most likely. And that's going to be a very tricky matchup because obviously as good as Tristan Jari has been this year, I think the fat, the, the, playoff performance he had last year against the Islanders is still going to be in the back of people's minds and the Rangers are going to have an advantage there net. Uh, you've got elite talent at every position. If you're the Rangers, you've got the best goalie in the world at the moment. Uh, you've got a top power play, which I believe is you know converting at the third highest rate, but you've got all these um, sort of red flags or flaws in terms of the five on five metrics. How are you, how are you approaching the deadline um, in their current position also factoring in that they're in kind of a, uh, a unique cap flexibility spot where next year you've got Fox and Zabinajed's extensions kicking in. We'll see what they do with Strom and that kind of second line center position, but this might be one of their last shots to really kind of aggressively improve the team in the short term before some of these higher dollar figures kick in and they're kind of locked into at least the core that they currently have. Yeah, this is where it gets like really interesting because so many teams wait to go through the playoffs a couple times or win, you know, to lock up their core. Winning obviously brings up the price. So can really good playoff runs. They went, they're going into their playoff window with an expensive core. Ideally, you can get a lot out of it. The tricky part too for some of it are the ages of the players. Savannah Jed's in his prime, Panarin's in his prime, Kreider's in his prime. The only young player in their core really is Adam Fox. Um, for those like hefty contracts. So that's the one tricky part for them to handle. Like it's already expensive and you don't want to look at it that it's their first year of the playoffs and they're going to be in a cap crunch by year two. Um, they're not a good enough five on five team. And what's going to complicate things is the Penguins are probably going to go for the same players that they are at the trade deadline, because this is a team with so many expiring contracts that, you know, they have to go all for it if they want to have another shot with their core. So they might be competing for the same players. And if the Penguins make drastic improvements, like that puts pressure on the Rangers to do it. Um, between their elite talent playing at this level and Shesterkin playing at this like ridiculously high level, it makes sense for them to go for it. As long as they don't deplete the assets they took years to build up and just use them all in one shot, like that would be the killer for them. If they're going to make a big splash, like, it should be a player like Hurdle. Like Hurdle's a really interesting one for me because they don't have a second line center for next year unless they extend Strom. And the cost to extend Strom might not be worthwhile for them. Uh, with Strom every year, it's has he peaked? Has he peaked? Oh, he's not going to get better than this. Right. Are they going to sell high? And then he keeps getting better. This year, it has fallen off a bit from last year. Uh, so if they're looking at this, as it's the sign of what's to come. Maybe their best option is trying to invest in a center. And you go for a player like Hurdle, have him as your 2C, put Ryan Strom on, you know, the second line wing. And now you have two really good top six wings. Um, if Kako isn't returning or uh, you could put Strom on your third line. And now you have a capable third line that they didn't have for a lot of this year. And it's, you know, Heedle, Strom and Barkley Gaudreau. That's your third line combination. Like there are a couple options there, but if not, it feels like they're going to go for a winger, maybe one that's a rental and, uh, so they don't have to worry about the cap complications of next year and can let Kako and Lafreniere handle those top six roles. 
And then maybe they go for a depth defender as well because Patrick Nemec's play has not been what they could have anticipated it to be. But there's pressure on them to make a move. And rightfully so, but you just have to like tread that balance of going all in and screwing the rest of the window that you're trying to build for. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that that kind of tees it up perfectly, right? I, I think I didn't really consider the the pops the possibility of adding a center and bumping Strom to the wing and then just letting him walk next year as an option because I was thinking like I don't know how many more. Time, minutes they can give to, to Dryden Hunt, for example, playing on, on Artemi Panarin's yeah. wing moving forward and expect to be considered a, a, a real contender, right? Like these are premium five on five minutes that you're just not maximizing. And so typically the players who are going to be able to convert on the opportunities Panarin creates are guys who score a lot of goals and are generally their acquisition cost is pretty high. So I'm not sure if that's going to be prohibitive for them, but Either, even some of these, someone like Arturi Lekkanen, not necessarily yep. to play with uh, Panarin on that line, but just in terms of identifying a relatively low-cost player that can come in and help with their 5-on-5 metrics and make this make it less of a landslide. Like The Penguins are going to be a tough series for them in round one if that, it turns out that, that to be the case. And then if they get through that, it's probably Carolina in round two, I think. And yep. I'm already envisioning and then a scenario. after that too, go further. It's Tampa. It could be Toronto. It could be Florida. Well, uh, I don't know if they would get by Carolina. Carolina. I think the, sh- yeah, the exactly. shots in that series could be like 42 to 21 in every game. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be tough. It's an uphill battle, but when you have players competing that are performing at the level they are, that they have, like you kind of owe it to yourself to, to at least give yourself a fighting chance at, Uh, making a spirited run. And especially as we talked about with the upcoming kind of financial hurdles for them, it makes sense to push in at least some of their chips right now and and try to make it work. So uh, that's that on the Rangers. Um, All right, let's switch gears here a little bit. Let's answer a question from, uh, from Chris Rydberg. He asks, why are more people not talking about Tanner Janot as a potential color candidate slash in general guys, a monster for the predators this year? I think Sorry, you go. Well, I was going to say, I think the answer to this one is is simple and it has nothing to do with T- Tanner Janot. It's just a, purely a matter of we have such a, it feels like especially awesome class of rookies this season. Um, and we just don't have enough remaining bandwidth as hockey fans to, to consider people like Tanner Janot because there's... Like, if you think about it, like Dawson Mercer is someone who I've loved watching this season and he's been remarkably effective right out of the gate. And he just has like no chance of even sniffing a, a top three finalist bid. Same with like Seth Jarvis, uh, Matt Boldy, who I love and has come on really strong. And I, I, you know, he's made such a big impact for the wild in the games he's played. But having missed the start of the year and, and you know, falling 15, 20, 25 games behind a lot of these peers it seems very unlikely that even he as good as he's been playing is going to be able to make up that gap because a lot of these top rookies have been from day one performing at a really elite level. And so Tanner Janot has been awesome. And we can talk about him a bit more here in a second, but I think it's purely a matter of it just the circumstances of this year's rookie class. It's just so deep and so good that it's really the guys on the fringes are going to be off ultimately kind of left behind a little bit in terms of consideration. Yeah, no, that's absolutely it. Because like, Tanner Janot is an effective player for Nashville. He's physical. He's a good depth scorer. Um, he's jacked. His arms are huge. Huge <laughs> advantage right there. He can win right there. Um, but, like, you're going up against the likes of Lucas Raymond and Mo Sider. And, like, Sider is the interesting one with Raymond because are, is this the vote going to get split because they're both on Detroit? Like, it shouldn't be the case, but sometimes that does happen. 
But even if that does happen, you still have Anton Lundell right there in Florida. He's thriving. You have Trevor Zegers in Anaheim. Like there's so many options this year. For me right now, it's Cider. Like he's my pick, I think, hands down. But the other three, any year could be a top caller candidate. So it's not about, you know, it's just about the field. And it, you know, it sucks sometimes like you would be in the mix in another season, but you know, hopefully he'll have a playoff run to have instead of a call their trophy. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think cider is by himself at the top. Um, you know, just the, the, the context and the degree of difficulty of what he's been asked to do and how he's handled it to me, I think needs to be taken into account here. Like he's a net positive in shots and goals at five on five for the Red Wings while playing most of his minutes with Danny DeKaiser, who just got put on waivers and was probably one of the worst regular NHLers in the league this season. Like they've leaned on him in all situations. He's handled it remarkably well. His poise with the puck, like the physical dominance without the puck, where he's just like bullying grown men and just like knocking them to the ground and taking the puck from them. It's just, it's stuff that you don't see from a 20 year old defenseman who's just entering the NHL. And so I've been completely blown away by, by what Sider's done. I think for Janot, like, listen, he's, going to score like 25 to 30 goals this season. If he keeps this up playing with Colton Sissons, Jacob Trennan, uh, what he's done is remarkable. He's doing most of his damage at five on five. Cause he's obviously not on the top power play unit or anything for them. He might have like, you alluded to this. He might have a case for being the strongest player in the league in terms of, it feels like when people run into him, they basically just run into a brick wall. And sometimes like people are just trying to hit him and just falling backwards and flying off of him. And so he's been an impressive player for them, especially, you know, credit to David Poyle and, and the Predators here when they protected him at the expansion draft last summer. I remember being like, what? Like, why, why did they do that? What did, what did they see here? And, and clearly they knew something because they've got a really useful player who's producing at a high level fits in exactly the way they want to play physically. And so credit to Janelle and credit to the Predators, but I think it purely is just a matter of, of the class that's that's around him. Yeah, the degree of difficulty for Cider is what wins it. And, you know, you can make the argument too. You could say, well, Luke Raymond's playing with, you know, Dylan Larkin. He's having an outstanding season himself and that's the Red Wings' best forward. Sure, like that is a consideration because, you know, sometimes a top rookie gets to play with the best. You look at uh, Panarin playing with Patrick Kane in his mm-hmm. rookie season. Like some would be against that. But like, you know, Zegris doesn't have these outstanding teammates either. Lindell is playing on the third line. And while he's had good teammates to go alongside, you know, like Reinhardt and Marchman for a lot of the season, like that's still not playing with the best. It's, mm-hmm. it's just a tough year. It's, it's like a steep hill for any rookie going against this class. And that's such a good thing for hockey, but obviously it's, you know, it's a tough blow for someone who wants those nods, you know, soon into their career. Certainly. Um, okay. I'm going to lump a couple questions here together because there's sort of a similar theme. Uh, DS Thomas 94 says, how aggressively should the Kings buy at the deadline? If at all, Carter Rubin asks, what do the Kings need to do to take the next step? Callisto GP says in the spirit of the season, which borderline playoff team should buy and which should hold or sell Los Angeles, especially has impressed me as a team that might be only one or two pieces away from being legit contenders. So we've got a lot of questions about the Kings. The Kings are a very trendy team. I think I'm excited to talk about them. Um, so where do you, where do you stand with the Kings in terms of um, kind of aspirations for this season, acknowledging where they are in their timeline and sort of, the current makeup of the team they have and, and what, how aggressive you think they should be in trying to sort of build on the success they've had so far this year, as opposed to what we just talked about the Rangers kind of taking 
a longer term approach and acknowledging that, you know, this probably is in your ear. So you don't necessarily want to just be completely, um, you know, getting blinders for it and, and not and then kind of not keeping a bigger picture view. Yeah, I think for the Kings, asset management is going to be the most important part of their deadline. Like you can look at the deals that they made for Victor Arvidsson. They didn't spend too much. And that was a reclamation project that obviously worked out for them. Um, for Deneau, they didn't have to move any assets. It was just a matter of cap space. And Trevor Moore was a really savvy you know, move for them too. And you see that line coming together. Now they have a new look second line that you know they're playing at such a high, you know, high pace offensively. They're so good defensively. It's everything that you can want from a second line. Uh, I do think they need a little bit more scoring. I do think they could look at a left-handed defenseman. Their right side seems pretty stocked like right now in the prospect pool. So the thing with them is though, Pittsburgh has all these expiring contracts and an aging core. So that's going to push them to go for it. Right. The Kings don't have those expiring contracts, but they have an aging core. So it's it's balancing it right now by making a smart move without moving too much because you don't want to just speed up your timeline because your you know core is getting older. When you have this new core that you could be building to come in and replace them, if you move too many pieces, you're going to lose that. And that's going to like you know shorten the lifespan of your next window of contention, which they're obviously building for. The division, though, is like the interesting wrinkle in this because you have Vegas, who could be on the outside looking in any given night, Edmonton, Anaheim's obviously fallen out of it a bit. So they have a really good chance to make it now. And then you have the Dallas Stars for a wild card spot, too. That can make it interesting unless they jump up into the division, you know, long term, which that's a whole nother conversation, you know. I think the fact that they play in the West versus the East is going to help them out a bit. And I think the fact that their division is weaker. Then some of the others, you know, the top is the top, but the rest have uh, struggled a bit. It yep. opens a door for them to go for it, but it's just going for it with some restraint, with some restraint, I think. Well, I, I think that's, that's the hitting the nail on the head here. I think generally as like a rule of thumb, I gave this a lot of thought as a general principle around the deadline. I think this is applicable to any point of the year, but especially so in these kind of higher leverage parts of the calendar around the traded line and the off season and free agency and all that, like there's a certain flow chart that I'd like my team to consider when, when making any sort of moves. And it's a three-step process. One, establish that the goal is to win the Stanley Cup and not just make the playoffs. And I know we've seen teams kind of squeak in, barely make the playoffs, and then go on long runs. But I think that's fool's gold. And I don't think you should be constructing your team under the illusion that, that that's going to be you. Like, I think you need to have bigger, bigger dreams here when you're building a team. Even Step though LA was that team. Like, that's the thing, too. You can't try to recreate history that they got in as the eighth seed and went all the way. Like, that's a big thing here, like, to separate what they've done versus what they could do now. And and even that team was, by the time they entered the playoffs, they were the eighth seed, but they were, like, one of the best five-on-five yep. teams we've ever seen in the analytics yep, era. Because exactly. they made, acquired, made, made the moves that they did, and made, you know, acquisitions, changed the coach, everything. So, step two critically evaluate how hard, how good your team is at the moment. And I think this is a really hard one because there's obviously emotions involved. And I think it's very easy to look at this stuff through kind of like rose tinted glasses and, and just think like, okay, the best case scenario could play out here for us. So let's see what happens. I think being able to sort of critically evaluate like, all right, our team is, is good. We're competitive, but there's better teams and we're probably not gonna be able to beat them is a really tough pill to swallow, but a very important one if you're kind of being realistic about your chances. And so once you do that, then you kind of acknowledge, okay, how close are we to achieving the goal of winning the Stanley Cup, which we've made for ourselves this year. And after you get through those two, you get to the third and most important step, which is making moves that help you get closer to that goal. So if you are a team that's kind of on the fringe and you're not sure, but you have, like you're the Ducks, for example, 
I think it's really tough to reconcile not getting as much as you can for Hampus Lindholm, Ricard Raquel, Josh Manson, even Ryan Getzlaff if he wants to go somewhere. Because while this year has been very encouraging, you're not going to win the cup. And you have a very interesting, exciting, uh, op- op- like encouraging young core moving forward, but you need to surround them with pieces moving forward that can help you actually get better as opposed to just kind of living on this pipe dream. So I think aligning those timelines for your players where you're able to get at least a couple of cracks at, at competing for a Stanley Cup and being a really good team is very important. And so that brings us to the Kings here where, and, and it's exactly what you we were talking about. I think someone like Jacob Chikrin makes a lot of sense for them for a variety of reasons. And I've kind of really talked myself into that as being a really good fit purely from the idea of he's a 24 year old who's under contract for three more seasons after this one at just 4.5 million per, they have a need on the blue line and you're improving your team for this year. So you're not necessarily throwing in the towel or kind of conceding the rest of the season. He certainly is going to improve your outlook for the rest of this year. But even if you fall short and you lose in round one or round two, it's going to improve your team for the next three seasons as well, where you get all of his peak years. It's going to completely align with a lot of the players that you still currently have and will be adding through your uh, top ranked prospect pool. So I don't know. I think like someone like Chicken, who's under contract and at a reasonable figure and is still in his peak seasons makes a lot of sense for a team like the Kings. Absolutely. I think he's the perfect option for them to go for. And the interesting thing too, is like, if they don't, the ducks might, do you really want that to happen? Like, and that's, that's the thing, like teams are going to have to consider and you can't just do something because you think your opponent's going to in division that team that's building at the same time as you, that is going to be your playoff, you know, competitor probably for years to come. But it should be a consideration that if you don't jump for a move that sounds good for you and makes enough sense that they might, and that's going to burn you even more. And now you're going to be scrambling, looking for the next best option, maybe for the same cost, because that could set the market price and they're not worth it. So for me, Chikrin, I think is one of the perfect options for them. And it makes sense why they'd be looking at him. He's left-handed. He could fit in their lineup perfectly. And he helps them for years to come. And the same is going to go for some of the teams that don't want to keep their restricted free agents. And you know, the smartest thing a team can do is look at themselves and go, we're not good enough to do anything but make the playoffs. Let's step back, make a smart move, retool really quickly and get a couple assets that we could flip in the off season to do something else. And, you know, sometimes it comes down to, like you said, with the Ducks, if they want to move on from Lindholm, is that going to hurt? Of course. But if you move him versus the smaller pieces that might get you a couple of things here or there, you get a better return. You don't have to break up your team as much either. So, you know, you could have a really smart strategy with that. The Kings could still go for Chikrin and find another piece to move if they really want it as well. So they have a lot of options. They have one of the best prospect pools, if I remember correctly, too. Like, you know, they rank really highly relative to the rest of the league. Why not see what you can do while maintaining that and getting better for now and in the future? Yep. Uh, we're on, we're completely aligned there. Um, all right. I got exciting, exciting news here. We're going to be joined by broadcasting superstar, Allison Luke and a PDO cast first. We, uh, we're getting someone calling into the show. Uh, I told Allison we were going to be recording at this time and I wanted to, to get her on to chat with us. So, um, I, I'm really excited for this. We're gonna, we're gonna take a quick little break here. Um, and then once we pick back up, we're going to talk to Allison. Recognize employees with Custom Ink. Show customer appreciation with Custom Ink. Outfit your teams with Custom Ink. Easily add your logo to your favorite products and brands at custominc.com. Make Custom Ink your custom gear partner with great customer service, quality products, and all-in pricing, along with personalized help when you need it and an easy-to-use website when you don't. All backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. 
Do it all today at custominc.com. Champions aren't born, they're made. And the secret to make your business reign supreme, Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Forget the off-season work. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling warm-ups or wall hangers, it's time to start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build the relationships that create die-hard fans. Shopify fields all the sales channels to grow a winning business from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Shopify is a secret to becoming a business champion by making it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, taking the guesswork out of selling. When you're ready to take your winning idea to the world, team up with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash bluewire, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash bluewire to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash bluewire. While we take a break here during the PDO cast, let me tell you a little bit about HelloFresh, which is sponsoring today's episode. With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. The recipes are easy enough for even someone as useless as myself in the kitchen to follow thanks to their well-laid-out steps and pictures that help guide you along the way. They offer 50 unique menu and market items to choose from each week, which provides you with plenty of variety and options for whatever your dietary preferences may be. Most importantly, HelloFresh is a massive time saver for your busy day-to-day life. Not only does it cut out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips, but it also allows you to cut back on the amount of time you're actually needing to spend in the kitchen with meals that are ready in 30 minutes or less. Plus, They've also got quick and easy meals, which include 20-minute recipes that have low prep and easy cleanup options, which provide an even faster route to putting food on your table. That's why they make cooking easy, fun, and affordable, and that's why it's America's number one meal kit. If you're like me, that's a massive perk. Most nights, I'm busy glued to my laptop trying to keep up with six different games that are all happening at the same time because the NHL insists on having puck drops that are all happening at once and... I don't know why they keep doing it, but it keeps me really busy and it doesn't give me a lot of free time to be messing around in the kitchen or trying to figure out what I'm going to have for dinner that night. So being able to cook up a quick and easy meal that's both filling and delicious is such a luxury for me to be able to enjoy and just makes my life that much easier. If that sounds interesting to you and you want to get in on the fun, just go to HelloFresh.com slash PDOcast16 and use the promo code PDOcast16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com slash PDOcast16 and make sure you let them know we sent you by using the code PDOcast16 to redeem the offer they've currently got going on. Now let's get back to the show. Congratulations on on uh, on being on the broadcast over the weekend. Yeah, I thought you did. I li- I listened to both games. I thought you were remarkable in the role. And uh, I wanted to have you on because I have actually haven't had you on the podcast since you since you moved to covering the Kraken. And, and you've been such a foundational guest on the PDO cast for for years since I started doing the show. So I just wanted to celebrate and have you on and and to kind of talk about it because it's such a cool experience. And I just wanted to pick your brain for like five or 10 minutes here about sort of what, sure. just what it was like. And I even told Shane, I was like, we're having Allison on, she might pop by. So think of some questions because we got to, oh, we got to yeah. take advantage oh, great. of this. Here we go. Here oh we yeah, go. this is going to be good. <laughs> I, when Allison did her thing about being a mascot, I was like, I'm going to help you. I'm going to come up with questions for you and thought of the 
wildest fucking questions I could come up with about her experience as a mascot. So she has dealt with me asking her questions total of one time. And it went well for one of us. Well, Allison, <laughs> what would, yes, I want to be, I want the most like generic Are we recording. Is this happening? Is oh. this a real, the part of it? Oh, this is part of the podcast. We're just keeping we off this. Here's, here's, here's the first question I have. Okay. This is a real like generic talking head, uh, like intermission report question. What was it like? Okay. What was it like out there? What was the experience? Because tell us about it. Tell you us got about to, you got to live the dream of, of being in the booth of providing commentary for a live game while fully acknowledging that I would be completely terrified because, you know, you don't have a safety net there. Like you're literally on TV talking about stuff as it's happening and you're, you know, you're not necessarily able, like on a podcast like this, I can do preparation. I can fact check stuff. I can make sure if something goes off the rails, we don't have to post the show. You're just like out there. And it certainly, I, I imagine helps having someone as professional as John Forslund to, to be a partner on the call, but just that uh, like, walk us through um, what it was like, especially like, you know, the puck gets stopped. You have 20 seconds before the puck is dropped again to provide some interesting observation or nugget or actionable information. But you're kind of facing this time clock, time ticking time clock of like, all right, uh, I'm going to have to let the play-by-play person jump in here because it's their job and I have to quickly get in and out basically. Yeah. So um, first and foremost, I would not have even contemplated it without working with a pro like John Forsland. I mean, the man is a legend and I knew going into it, um, one of my, when I was asked to fill in for JT, who we all can't wait to get back and healthy. So get better JT. Um, I said, I'll do it if you guys think I can do it. And if John thinks that I can do it, um, because I needed to know he was wanting to work with me in this little window and I knew, I knew I would make mistakes. I mean, everybody does. And I knew that he would be amazing and protect me and get me through it. Um, and I think this whole TV experience, since I haven't ever done it, I think ignorance has been bliss. I think that <laughs> I felt okay going in, especially because of John and the organization and my team at Root Sports Northwest as well were just amazing and helping me get prepared. Um, and people like Shana helping me get prepared as well cannot be underestimated. But you're sitting there and you're looking and I think you think you understand how much color commentary is in a game, but you don't until like there's a stoppage and your producers in the ear going, we're starting to play here. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I have to say something now. Um, so I think ignorance was a little bit of bliss. I would have been probably more terrified if I knew it was coming, but um, it's kind of surreal. And I think that when we think of commentators that we all really enjoy or who we think do the best job and everyone has different preferences. Um, for me, I have so much respect and particularly for someone like JT who sees the game, knows the game, sees so many different facets and can process it all instantaneously to your point, because how many of us count on those replays, right? Like we all do. We're like, Oh, now I see that. Or now I see this um, to take that all in and to inform it with the way he's changing his way of thinking from a player to an analyst is mind blowing to me. I think he's going to be what the next wave of truly top notch commentators look like in the industry. Well, I'm really curious about, um, you know, in the moment you're, are you, are you focusing on the monitor in terms of what's going on in the, in the, in the gameplay? Cause it's like, it, it, it's so bizarre <laughs> to me to, to, you know, especially for like commentators, like you're at the game, you're watching it, but then you're not, 
it's such a different view compared to what you're used to from watching on your laptop or on your TV at home. And then like, how, what's the, what's the reference like there in terms of are you like trying to keep your eye on multiple things at once or, or, or are you focusing on specific things knowing that at the next stoppage, you've got something lined up that you're going to want to talk about? Like, like what's that sort of process like in terms of literally as the action's happening, kind of what's racing through your mind and what you're thinking about in terms of what you're going to say next? Wait, let me ask. Yeah, it's kind is of, there a delay yeah. though? Is there a delay for like 1.2? I know, I know. It's like, should I tie my hands behind my back when I do a podcast? Come on. This is what you expect from me. I'll get you back tomorrow when you go, like when you're on the broadcast. Don't worry. I know. Um, you always do. Is there any delay? Like if you look, is it one second from like the live to monitor? Like, can you shift your, you know, your focus at all? Or is it so instantaneous that you can't? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of all of these things happening. And um, I think I certainly benefited from being writing press for so long because I'm familiar with the overhead view versus just always watching on monitors. So that was a very um, huge advantage for me. And I've also benefited from um, going into the gifting space, which Shana taught me how to do years Gif. ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm comfortable gifting. So Gifing. moving pictures, <laughs> listen. So um, I'm comfortable going from game level to watching a monitor. But what we have in front of us this is my process. I could be completely wrong, <laughs> but my process is I'm watching the game. I've got John in my ear calling play real time. I have a monitor in front of me that is the straight feed from the truck. So it's real time. There is no delay. And then I have a second monitor that is showing me what's being shown to the audience on TV. So I have, usually I have no opportunity to preview what's coming up before it comes up. My producer is amazing and will give me cues and be like, it's from this angle or what have you. Um, So usually watch the game, producer saying, we're going to talk about this. I switch and I look at the monitor of what's coming up and then I have to talk through whatever the replay is as it's happening. Now, similarly, as I'm watching the game, since this is my shtick, at an appropriate point, you know, I try and make educated guesses when I can flash to look at natural stat trick or flash to look at evolving hockey or something like that, because those will be the kind of tidbits I will try and bring in. Um, and then similarly, so we have a button on our mic box where let's say, and you, it's, it's, this is like the best worst part. Like you might see a great play, like Morgan geeky had a tremendous shift in the neutral zone yesterday. And I can talk back to my producer and say, mark that shift. Mm-hmm. So if we need something going into a break or a stoppage or something, he can say, we're going to the geeky shift. And then I can talk through that shift as a highlight. But of course the Morgan geeky shift happens. I'm so excited to talk about it. And then there was a goal. So of Mm. course the goal takes priority. So we never get to see the geeky shift. So watching live, preparing to watch monitor and also conversing, listening to John and also conversing with producer real time on things we may want to see players. We want to ISO what's coming up next. The more I explain it, it sounds really crazy. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's like an overwhelming amount of stimuli. Uh, Like I've never, I've never done uh, commentary on a game, but I've been lucky enough to do like, broadcasts in, during intermission uh, live from the rink sure. and just at uh, these Canucks games and they're just like there's it's just so loud and there's like literally people behind you that are fans that are just like yelling and trying to get your attention and uh it's it's it really takes like a broadcasting professional to kind of tune that out and just focus on what you want to say and not just kind of have complete brain farts so uh I thought you did a remarkable job and then like the breakdowns yeah, of, of, of plays after are obviously a, a forte of yours, but doing it in a, in a live setting like that is really cool. I, I the, the bird's eye view does really provide you with 
an interesting perspective though, especially in terms of like seeing how plays materialize that you're just, you, you don't get to see it when you're watching from home because you can't see necessarily like where the player was coming from, if they're like a trailer or something like that. So I, it, it's got its pros and cons, but um, yeah, it's really interesting. Okay. I'm um, going to ask a question yeah, <laughs> in the most professional way. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Okay. Are there any stats like the other day you were talking about offensive zone time and you said when that, and then that came up on the score bug and you were able to talk about it. Can you get that in real time? Like if you wanted to know what the team's carrying percentages, maybe not, you know, as much of the nitty gritty, but like, what do you get during games that, you know, we wouldn't be able to get normally? Yeah. So for me, it, great question because it gives me an opportunity to again, praise the root sports team. Um, I'm used to getting that from sport logic on a period by period basis, which has always suited my work in the past and the cadence of my work. So I was fully prepared to hint at it and talk about it after the first period intermission, but my team at root has access to a different service that has a select group of stats. And they just picked up on me saying that. And then they were in my ear and said, look at the score. And it allowed me to speak to it real time. So they have a stat service. If we get to things like entries and stuff like that, we also have a stats human who's in the booth with us, who's <laughs> tracking things live. Um, and if we ask for specific things or ask them to track stuff like that, um, we can, um, because I don't know that we get entry and exit data real time. And also I'm such a snob about entries and exits. I like them defined the way I like them defined. So yeah. Um, that's probably something I would not do just because then I'd be like, well, what does this mean? And what does this mean? Because that's on me. That's not their stats. Their statisticians are tremendous. Well, okay. So we're, this is a, a mailbag show. And, and we do have a question here from uh, from friend of the show. Ian Tullock um, asks, how um, have you, or well, it was for Shana, but I guess we'll, we'll loop you in Alice here. I'm curious for your take. Have you found any major difference between private and public data uh, especially with regards to the sport logic in terms of, um, you know, certain metrics or whether it's expected goals or, or what have you. Um, Shane, I'll let you go first. And then Allison, you jump in on that as well. Um, is there anything you've kind of noticed in, in working with some of these metrics that people might not necessarily know just based on using natural statric or evolving wild or whatever public platform they use? So, um, pre-shot movement is an expected goals for sport logic. And that's huge because that's something, you know, uh, Allison and I both talked to the four core expected goal model creators in the hockey sphere with evolving hockey, hockey viz, money puck, and natural stat tricks. And that was something that everybody wants, but obviously NHL data precludes anyone from having. That's the biggest difference, uh, you know, in expected goals because you can see the numbers change slightly if there's, you know, a Royal Road pass rate before it or a stretch pass. And, you know, already we could see things like rush attempts and odd man rushes and things like that, you know, second chance efforts, but this just takes it up another, another level. And that's the biggest gap. I think too, when we talk about expected goals, sometimes that's what the complaint is. It's either, it doesn't have pre-shot movement or it doesn't have shooting talent. And for sport logic, there isn't shooting talent either. So you can say the average shooter would have this. And then now factor in the fact that they are, you know, David Pashanak shooting from this area of the ice where we know he can do X, Y, Z. But um, this just takes it to the next level from what we've been working with. And, uh, you know, it's great to have it with and without to have the comparison too to see how much of an influence there's a passing. And it's great that we can piece it together too with passing by, you know, Corey's work, his public work on passing too. So it's not like we're completely without it, but to actually have it in the expected goal model, I think is a, is a huge step forward. And I can't wait for that eventually, hopefully to be a thing that everyone has. The dream. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with everything Shana said, obviously. And I think that 
what's, you know, we all are indebted to Corey Schneider for forever and infinity, um, but he is just one human. <laughs> and so I think, you know, again, for Sport Logic to have access real time to bigger type queries that we often have to wait for a little bit is, is huge. And I think my gut tells me what, what I like about sport logic also is that because they have this broader data set, you can look at a profile of a player different differently and more robustly and with different skills above and beyond what we just see. Um, and I do think I've not seen it, but I do think that there's even another level in terms of, what a hockey operations team has access to through a company like SportLogic, or obviously depending on where they are in their journey, parsing out this tracking data that is coming down the pike um, where, you know, and I think, I think that there, the difference is that if you have the staff, you can get access to the raw data. You know, the stuff that Shane and I are doing is, is impressively processed and calculated by SportLogic and their definitions, which is amazing. But I think it's, asking the new questions and being able to manipulate the raw data at its most base level to answer these very unique and specific questions is what sets them apart as well. Well, my answer to this is Shane and I, before talking about how um, frustrating it could be that, you know, if someone can make a nice pass, but if the person receiving it doesn't put the puck in the net, it's typically not a highlight that we're going to circle back to. And it's not going to be in highlight reels. We're not going to consider when we're talking about the best playmakers, or the best passers in the league, we generally cite assists, right? But that seems so silly when you think about it from the perspective of you can't really isolate it. Like you could argue that the best playmaker will put their shooters in a position to succeed by getting them the puck in dangerous areas and helping kind of put the puck on a silver platter for them, but ultimately they're dependent on those guys converting their chances. And I recently did like a big deep dive of Johnny Goodrow because I was really fascinated about the season he was having. And so I went back on Instat and I watched all of his shifts this season. And Instat is a great video service because it gets rid of all the commercials. It gets rid of all the shifts where he's not involved. And so it allows me to just isolate that. But I also did get a glimpse into what Corey Schneider goes through in the sense that I had to work through 50 games worth of Johnny Goodrow shifts and there's a lot where nothing happens, obviously. And so it's a very laborious uh, exercise and very time consuming, right? But I found it to be immensely um, intriguing to keep track of all the shot assists he was creating because it really helped capture how integral he was to the team's offense in terms of how everything revolved around him, how he was able to set people up, the kind of looks he was constantly generating. And, and I really, that's a stat that I just, I would love to have one click away for every single player and, and yeah. use that as more of a proxy for playmaking or offensive involvement than just, oh, this guy has 27 secondary assists this season. That doesn't ultimately really tell me that much about how involved they were. That goes back to like the Morgan Geeky example I gave right in the broadcast yep. is like, to me, that was an important play. To me, that was Morgan Geeky doing some very important things as far as transitioning the puck. But, you know, and, and we all know this and I say it all the time. And listen, I'm guilty of it. And we're all who are on the broadcast side. We're guilty of it. What do you see when you watch the five minute game recap? Or what do you watch when you watch, you know, on the fly on NHL network, you see the goals or the saves. Yep. And I understand that that tells the story of the game and I understand that goals dictate standing points, dictates, dictates, dictates. But I think this is the new challenge for us too. It's not just having the data because people like Shana are writing on this across the league every single week. It's not just having the data. It's 
communicating why this is important and changing, understanding that there is value in games and understanding that, but also understanding that player evaluation is perhaps a different value calculation and demanding that above and beyond just the common stat line and wins and losses. Yep, yeah, you said the smart thing there. <laughs> is that what you're going to say, Shana? Oh, yeah, totally. 100%. <laughs> Actually, verbatim. Allison <laughs> took it right out she of my mouth. <laughs> we're so linked up. We just we have a shared brain. She just puts it out in such a you know, smart way that I'm just going to nod my head and be like, yep, that's it. That was awesome. Um, all right. Well, we've taken up enough of your time. Let's get out of here. Um, Allison, first, I'll let you go. Plug some stuff. Um, where can people check you out? What do you got next on the schedule? And then Shane, I'll let you go after that. So you can find me on Twitter at Allison L. My writing is at the Seattle Kraken website under the news section. This is insane to me still, but there is a section called Analytics with Allison. Um, that's there. And I will be on Roots Sports Northwest um, for pre and post game shows on the usual. And I'm on the game broadcast uh, for tomorrow's game in Toronto. And what is it? Tomorrow's Tuesday. Time is a flat circle. And Thursday. Thursday's game in Ottawa. Thank you, Shana. See, that's why Shana's smarter. I just, I'm just following. It's fine. I'm just here to take clips of her, post them on the internet, get a bunch of clicks on them, be like, yeah, look, my friend's thriving. It's fine. Stop yeah. it. You're yeah. a rock star. You Whoa. know it. Where do you, where, where do you post those clips, Shana? Tell us about that and tell us about uh, the work you've been doing because it feels like you are writing at an insanely frequent volume and and I try to keep up with everything, but it's, it's, it's exhausting and I can't imagine yeah. how you feel. So, so, <laughs> it's so exhausting. give us, give us the rundown of sort of some of the recent stuff you've written about and where people can check all that out. So you find all those fancy clips and gifs and moving pictures and videos on Twitter at Hey Shay, because I'm very professional over here with three Y's on the Hey and three Y's on the Shay. Um, uh, let's see, I have coming up, I'm writing about the next Barkley Goudreau or Blake Coleman that's available on the market. That'll be up on The Athletic tomorrow. Um, I have fantasy hockey going on Fridays and I'm doing something about uh, trends for contending teams at Sportsnet. I think it's running tomorrow. It'll be about the teams who are kind of sliding like Minnesota, Toronto, and the teams who are really thriving like the Dallas Stars as a way to make that playoff push. Well, I'm looking forward to all that and uh, appreciate both of you taking the time out of your busy schedules to come chat. This was a blast. I'm glad we got to connect. So uh, keep up the great work and uh, and hopefully we'll have both of you back on sometime down the road. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for having us. All right. That is going to be it for today's episode of the Hockeypedia cast. Thank you as always for listening. Thank you to those of you who sent in mailbag questions. Apologies to those of you uh, that sent in questions and didn't get them answered on today's show. Uh, we only had so much time to to get to the ones that I thought cover the most ground, but um, I assure you we'll, uh, we'll bank them and hopefully get to them at a later date. And if you want to get involved in, in future editions of the mailbag, um, certainly feel free to just send me questions, whether it's either via email or, or just tweeting them at me or DMing me. Uh, I'm always uh, looking for fun questions that we can we can tackle in the PDO cast here. So we're going to try to do more of these kind of interactive style formats moving forward and uh, always appreciate your involvement. So uh, yeah, if you enjoy the show, um, certainly you can help us out by leaving a quick little rating and review wherever you typically listen to your podcasts. Uh, just smash that five-star button. If you're feeling extra generous or really enjoying the show, you can uh, write up a quick little blurb that lets people know what you like about it in particular or why you recommend they check it out if they haven't done so already. And each of those helps us quite a bit moving forward. So thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for helping out with the with the rating. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed 
the audio quality um, of my new mic. Uh, certainly excited about it. We've dealt with a lot of audio issues and uh, frustrating um, you know, situations on podcasts in the past. So uh, hopefully this is a new step forward for us and uh, we're going to put that uh, behind us in the rear view mirror and it's going to be smooth sailing from here on out. So thank you for your continued patience and your support. And uh, we're going to be back here soon with, uh, with more content. So until then. The Hockey Pediocast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey pediocast.